0: It's work, and I'll have patients work with me sometimes for a year, sometimes multiple years, getting their ducks in a row so that their body's actually ready to start a very slow taper off of their medication. So it's a really disciplined overhaul of their health, but then you actually can do that instead of medication. But it speaks to what's really going on.
1: Welcome to the HGW Podcast. We're your hosts, Zoe Sekutis and Erica Huss, founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled and sold, and now we're moving on. We put down the juicer and picked up
2: the mic to start a conversation. We'll bring you behind the scenes information on leading brands and emerging ideas in this rapidly evolving world of wellness.
1: Every Wednesday, we chat with experts or entrepreneurs who help us cut through the noise and bring you information you can actually use. No shaming,
2: no guilt, just the cold-pressed truth about real ways you can feel better, mentally, physically, and emotionally.
1: And bonus, we even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of your wellness journey.
2: Clinical studies have shown that writing five-star reviews improves mood and circulation. So if you like what you hear, give us some love and share with a friend.
1: Often irreverent and occasionally intuitive, consider us your navigators on the bumpy highway to well.
2: I still have that song in my head that you were singing. Which one? Mr. Sun, Sun,
1: Mr. Golden Sun,
2: please, please shine that on me. me.
1: Uh, I was trying to harmonize with you there. Oh, it was not bad, actually. Um, yeah, that's a really good one. It's it's quite sunny out today. It is quite sunny. It's quite hot. It's quite hot. It's about 100 degrees here in
2: Brooklyn. I mean, I don't want to be a, you know, Debbie Downer, but if there's a blackout this weekend, you heard it here first.
1: It's okay. I can play tennis in the dark. I'm going to tennis camp this weekend. I know you 100 are. 100 degree weather. I am sick and twisted. It's really uh, just, You are a little bit. It's horrible. It's,
2: it's going to be fun. It's going to be more tennis than you would be playing if you were not going to tennis camp.
1: You like how I did that math? Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a
2: little rough, but you're going you're to feel amazing at the end of it.
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to feel oh, very yeah. proud. It's called heat stroke. Um, there will be throw up in the court. I can guarantee that. Ugh, Not God. by me, but somebody's going down. Oh, I think more than one. Someone's going to go down. Bring,
2: make sure you're bringing like, like hydration packets and all that stuff, though. Like, don't, don't mess around with this. Okay.
1: Oh, thanks for looking out. You're welcome. Huh?
2: I should have brought you some more of those. <laughs> anyway, on to the topic. Um, we had a chat with Dr. Ellen Bora, who we adore.
1: Mm-hmm. Holistic psychiatrist. Yes. She is a gem and a wealth of knowledge. Um, we've had her on before. We talked about anxiety. And this time she came back to speak very specifically about um, bipolar, which is increasingly common, I think, because we're learning now how to sort of spot it more and more. Yeah. But We do want to note, though, that, I mean, obviously, we're touching on pretty
2: serious themes in this episode, in this conversation, bipolar and depression. We spent a lot of time talking about mania, but depression in its various forms. And we want to make sure and be clear that, you know, this is, there's, it's a serious topic, obviously. And we want to know that, we want people to know if you are struggling with this topic or struggling with health issues in, you know, in terms of mental health, if you have any suicidal thoughts, or if you know somebody that there is a suicide prevention hotline. We're gonna list it in the show notes. Um, the number is 800-273-8255. And it's definitely something that we are really trying to bring this topic into the
1: conversation so that people do feel comfortable reaching out for help. Yes, it should should not be something that we are not talking about right. in 2019. Right. It's just, there's no excuse. So let's dive in and let's start talking about it. Yeah. We are here to this time around to talk about bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Do we still say disorder? We do. Um, <laughs> and thanks for coming on. That was a great... That was awesome. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we could probably just start with like a broad overview. I think there are a few different types. Two different types? There are two different
0: types. Yeah. So in a way, I'll answer your question, but I'll also say how I never even really put that much stock in the way we approach these things from the diagnostical statistical manual or DSM lens. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's two types of bipolar, bipolar one and bipolar two bipolar one is more considered like the true blue bipolar illness where someone has um, you basically have to have had a manic episode. To qualify for bipolar one. Um, And then most people also experience depressive episodes. People spend actually more time in depressive episodes than they do in mania. But mania is the thing we write home about. It's really striking and it can be dangerous and problematic. And people actually often really enjoy being in that state except sometimes it's a mixed state, which can be pretty uncomfortable. Bipolar 2 is a lot milder, and this is someone who might cycle between hypomanic episodes and sometimes true blue depression, sometimes just a sort of dysthymia or milder depression.
2: And how does somebody, especially given what you just explained about bipolar 2, how would someone even think to wonder if that's what they're suffering from versus just being like having their mood swings? I mean, it, does mood swings classify there?
0: Great question. So that's just the thing is that um, if you go talk to a trigger-happy psychiatrist, they would love to slap the label bipolar two on someone who has mood swings when in fact mood swings can be many things going on. A lot of women have mood swings um, as it pertains to their cycling hormones from month to month. So is that bipolar? Is that hormonal? Does that deserve a DSM diagnosis? And then some people it's blood sugar, swings or reactions to certain foods or reactions to certain substances like alcohol. So we call a lot of this bipolar, but I think sometimes that's not the most accurate takeaway. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's confusing. It's um, Well, can you actually just describe a manic state, like the mania? Because I think that's so confusing for, for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's not quite the opposite of depression, but what is it?
0: Yeah. So classically, the way I evaluate for it with my patients, it's like, I'll say, did you ever have a phase or a period of life where you didn't need as much sleep? So you have a decreased need for sleep and where you might've like the words that psychiatrists would use would say there's grandiosity, like a higher opinion of yourself, (laughs) smiling knowingly. Um, We all know somebody who's been through this. Um, So grandiosity, sometimes there's increased impulsivity. Sometimes there's like excessive spending, gambling, all of these rewarding behaviors, things that give you a hit of dopamine. I almost think of it like when you're in a manic episode, you know, on an NPR fundraiser, it's like, oh, if you donate now, like this donor will twice, you know, will double your donation. I think with anything rewarding when you're manic, it's like you Mm -hmm. get 3x the reward. Right. So people want to gamble. They want to spend money. They want to have more sex. They, sometimes it's like promiscuous sex or more impulsive or more risky sex. And there's usually a, a euphoric feeling. It's kind of an elevated feeling. Mm-hmm. People think fast, talk fast. There's something called pressured speech where you're um, talking very fast and even less interruptible by other people. That's a pretty hallmark trait where wow. it's like you can't get a word in edgewise. But sometimes people. Are in a mixed or agitated state. So sometimes it's more like being really up, but also kind of uncomfortable in your body. Um, So a lot of people actually don't have just like um, a euphoric feeling, but more of a agitated, really speedy almost almost feeling, hyped up feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: again, it feels like these all of everything you've just described. I feel like we're sitting here nodding, like yep, seen that, yep, been that, and like what, like how is anybody ever supposed to? be able to tell the difference and actually have it addressed properly. Mm
0: -hmm. So for true blue mania, um, it is different. So you and I, like, you know, if you're not bipolar, you could drink too much coffee and be like, I'm basically manic and no. right? Right. So real mania, there's a true decreased need for sleep. So someone who's getting two or three, maybe four hours of sleep at night on a sustained basis Mm. and not feeling tired, but in fact, having more energy than usual. So Uh if any of us got three hours of sleep on a night the next day, we would not be happy campers. And then if we did that two nights in a row, we'd be like, I really need to sleep. Mania looks completely different than that. And then there's usually pretty uh, pronounced behaviors that are not like easily recovered from. So really excessive spending Mm -hmm. or people will hop on a jet plane and go off to Cartagena. You know, it's sort of like, it's a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. And the pressured speech is actually pretty striking. So if you really can't get a word in edgewise, a modern day way that you pick up on this is you'll see somebody on Instagram or Facebook writing like extremely Ranting. long and kind of scattered yeah. posts and then another one immediately after and another one and so that's actually an interesting new lens into like picking up on wow. mental illness
1: wow i feel like i see that quite often
0: not just trolling it... on twitter but like a sort of burying your soul in an almost disorganized way and and almost Got like it. a just a, a excess of creativity and and Producing material. Yeah.
2: So, is that really like that is the hallmark of this disorder? Like, is that something that could be confused with something else?
0: Mania. Well, it can, can be confused with a substance induced mania. So, okay. a lot of people will look like that on cocaine, but that right. does not mean that they're bipolar. That means they're
1: um, high on
2: cocaine. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. And then, is it safe to say that most people? Bipolar people quite enjoy cocaine.
0: I was going to go there. <laughs> That's where this gets scary is that um bipolar people often do love substances that can mimic Uppers. a manic state. Yeah. 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 It feels like a very speedy kind yeah. of zone.
2: So what are the roots of this? Like, how does this begin? Yeah,
0: so that's where I think it gets interesting because in conventional psychiatry, you're basically taught this is what bipolar one is, this is what bipolar two is, here are the medications that you should put someone on and keep them on forever and ever, happily ever after, but not really. And uh, that never sat right for me. And I've just always wanted to take more of an ancestral approach to mental health and more of a hopeful approach to mental health. Like, I don't really just accept Okay like here's your lamictal and you know we'll just refill this for the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. I want to think is there anything that we can be doing on a physical basis is there anything we can be doing at the root of this so that you're just actually not bipolar anymore and it obviates the need for medication. And I'm happy to say that that's actually a pretty common thing that comes up in my practice is getting people off of medication for bipolar. I don't say this lightly, especially in a forum like this on a podcast. So anybody out there who's bipolar sure. and on their Depakote yeah. or their lithium, they're like, oh, that doctor says you can get off your meds. Um, so whoa, tiger. So it's work. And I'll have patients work with me sometimes for a year, sometimes multiple years, getting their ducks in a row so that their body's actually ready to start a very slow taper off of their medication. So it's a really disciplined overhaul of their health, but then you actually can do... that instead of medication but it speaks to what's really going on Mm -hmm. it can be a lot of different things i think sometimes it's a thyroid issue so a lot of thyroid issues i think can masquerade as bipolar illness what's happening often with an autoimmune thyroid issue is that there are antibodies attacking the thyroid and what what happens then is that during the attack it's like stimulating the thyroid so it's almost like there's an excess of thyroid hormone in the bloodstream which can look a little bit like mania and then the thyroid is damaged and it starts to underfunction and then you're relatively hypothyroid which looks a lot like depression so what i find is i'm always taking a really good look at thyroid function in my bipolar patients and Way more often than not, I see some degree of thyroid dysfunction. So then you really want to focus on healing the thyroid or at least adequately managing it so that that's preventing the bipolar episodes.
1: So, do you see more thyroid dysfunction in bipolar patients than you do in just average patients, yes. or are you just not looking at Okay.
0: Looking at it in everybody. You're looking it, at it's a higher it. proportion in my bipolar oh, okay. patients. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so, are people, are, are you chemically,
1: I mean, are you born with bipolar? Because I know oftentimes it's not. Discovered until it's a very. It seems to be. I mean, I don't know. You tell me, but it seems that it's a very late discovery. Typically, people don't find out until their twenties or you know.
0: Yes, although that's changing. So, okay. um, so born with it. I think you're born with the vulnerability or the predisposition, but as we say in functional medicine, the genes load the gun, the environment pulls the trigger, mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of people are walking around the vulnerability, and then something precipitates it. One interesting thing that's been precipitating it increasingly in our modern world is actually SSRI antidepressant medication. So that's a little bit of an undertold and pretty disconcerting truth is that there's really incredible piece of journalism, a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. Mm -hmm. And he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He basically looked at the fact that we now have so much more mental health treatment and everyone's medicated and you'd think we're better off. But what you actually see is more disability due to mental illness, more chronicity of our mental illnesses, and you see higher rates of bipolar. And one thing that's a little ugly truth within mental health is that we know that SSRI antidepressants can precipitate a manic episode, and they basically have converted someone to bipolar disorder. It's considered an iatrogenic bipolar disorder, which is a really fancy word for, oops, the doctor caused this.
2: So in treating depression, you can actually trigger bipolar. Exactly. Jesus.
1: Yeah. And oftentimes, bipolar is... I think misdiagnosed, I mean, just, you're just depressed and then they go on antidepressants and then that has a whole new.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I see stories that I'm not psyched about in both directions. You'll see someone who, if there had been a better, more comprehensive psychiatric evaluation, any psychiatrist worth their weight salt would have recognized like there was a bipolar diathesis happening here and they shouldn't have just slapped on an SSRI. I've also even seen a couple of cases where someone had a family history of bipolar. And so they were put on mood stabilizers initially instead of antidepressants. And I'm not really even thrilled about that situation either. Cause there's this <laughs> presumption of bipolar illness where there actually, it doesn't exist. Right. So in those cases, I think, you know, you want to look under the hood and think, how can we get this person feeling better? Maybe even without medication.
2: Is it, So, okay, it's present or your vulnerability to it is present when you're born, but is it something that is, I mean, is it genetic? Like, do you pass it from one generation to the next? And if so, are there steps that you can take to like prophylactically address it? Yeah.
0: So that genetic vulnerability is absolutely heritable. So if you have it, you know, your kids may have it um, and so on and so forth. But there's so much, we can all feel so empowered to Take care of our genes, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's a call to action that you want to live with a little bit more discipline around diet and lifestyle. Which
1: is applicable to everything, right? I mean, you're going to turn on any weird gene that you don't want if you're not, you know,
0: that's exactly the right. Other yeah. people tend to be motivated by the one that particularly applies to them. Yeah, but it's yeah, sort of it like it all totally. ends up funneling into the same answer. It's like, ah, so you should sleep well and eat real food. Right. It's like, oh, because you have this gene, which makes you vulnerable for bipolar. This person has this gene, making them vulnerable for dementia. It really doesn't matter. We should all just be doing the right things. But people are motivated by seeing it on paper. they like, Yeah, mean, exactly. I
1: mean, listen, 23andMe and all that good stuff is... Yeah. <laughs> Is sort of on fire for a reason, fear mongering, and
2: in addition to being helpful.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's all totally helpful. I mean, I want to, like, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I would love to know everything that I'm predisposed Like, I want to know all of it.
2: Yeah.
0: I I think, I think I do until I don't. Exactly. The one that's complicated is something called Huntington's disease.
1: I know. I saw this documentary on Huntington's. You you know what I'm talking about?
0: I haven't seen the (gasps) documentary. I do not. So let's Uh, talk about it. 50, 50 50
1: horrible disease yeah
0: yeah Sorry, so you, you almost about? just don't want to know that that's I mean maybe you do I don't know it's really complicated but that one's not a no-brainer
1: that one is it's quite severe right what is it it, it we... gets you very young like, yeah it's
0: very it's basically certain death in your 40s so, oh, yeah and it's not a pretty ending it's, to your life so um, and it's purely genetic like it's not even polyfactorial it's like if you have if I think it's if you're, I it could be wrong but if you're homozygous for the gene or maybe it's dominant, recessive. maybe it's recessive dominant actually. Yeah, the- the um, Or women, homo- heterozygous dominant, I forget these terms. I mean, you obviously
1: know better than I do, but the <laughs> the documentary was uh, basically about this woman who was finding out and the chances, I think it was like based on her parents. I think she had a 50% chance. It was right, literally 50 right.
0: I remember now, so it's if you have just one copy of the gene, it's dominant. and she had
1: one. yeah. And so she ended up, and it was horrible. I mean, it was like you know, everyone, all of her friends were educated enough about what that meant for her future, her very near future. I think she was like late twenties, maybe early thirties. And then she found out she had it, and it was really just like a ticking time bomb from that, but she was like, "Wow.
0: Anyway, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing, actually, now that I've thought about it further, I, I would want to know, and you would live your life differently if you sure. knew that you were going to die at 40. Right. Um, but I also wonder, like, should we all be living our lives a little bit differently? Exactly. You know? sure. and, uh, exactly. We don't know. Because
2: you can get hit by a chalk at 40. So,
1: well, I think that that is when you are sort of faced with any kind of death in your life, anything that brings you sort of like sharpens the mortality lens a little bit more mm-hmm. I think that really changes things like pretty immediately how you kind of behave daily yeah. and how you sort of like take stock and you recalibrate and yeah I mean I think it's a it's a good thing e-e- Yes,
0: it's. I think that in a way, for me, the main takeaway is relationships. Right? It's just that, like all the other dumb shit that we concern ourselves with, doesn't really matter. Right. right. That's everything for in perspective. Our connection with people. I will say, after this past weekend, I saw Deepak Chopra speak and I've never really been all that familiar with his work, I have to admit. And just as I was getting kind of confident in my understanding of what it is to be a human in this life and how to roll with that, he was like, <laughs> he was like nah. I am into non-locality and none that of weird. this matters. It's all an illusion. <laughs> it's all a dream. Yeah. And we are a infinite consciousness, just having a physical finite experience. And yeah, I was like, I'm going to have to. Mull over that one a little I bit. longer. Like, right.
1: pause, please. I'm gonna <laughs> digest. I know. I I like it's big. It's it's big, heady stuff. I listen to him a lot, and he's like, two minutes ago, is gone. <laughs> the future <laughs> is not yet. Doesn't Who exist. cares? <laughs> we are here yeah, recording no. this podcast, but we're not really. It's an illusion. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and then he levitates and then it's just like your mind just gets totally blown. Um, yes, yeah, so anyway.
2: So I want to go back to this question around hypomania and one versus two because I think that you see at this point many incidents of hypomania that would not necessarily be diagnosable. Like sometimes people will argue that that is like a quality that you're looking for in a natural leader, right? Mm, yeah. That's like... Incredibly focused, and you know, if you can't interrupt them, it's okay because whatever they're saying is vastly more important than what you're about to say. I mean, is that like is there is there an an arena in which this is actually not (laughs) necessarily considered a disorder, or that it's not necessarily something that needs to be addressed, Wall Street? (laughs)
0: <laughs> all of Wall Street. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's that's totally valid. I think that in a way, well, so much of how we think of mental health, like we've decided these are disorders, these are illnesses, they need to be medicated, they're pathologic, you should change, you should whisper about it, you should be ashamed of it. I think we can throw all of that away and work with what's in front of us. And I think that there is a certain amount of just normal human variation along that spectrum. And some people are kind of supercharged in that way. And it has its upsides and downsides. You know, you can be a really inspiring energetic leader. You can also be a little bit of a jerk. That can all go hand in hand. That can be someone who um, probably does go through lower periods. So, you know, what's better, cycling subtly or being steady Eddie? It's tough to say. But I think that I'm always interested in knowing what's precipitating this. Mm-hmm. And if it's like truly somebody in a state of physical balance getting the right sleep, uh, their body is operating well, and they're still like that, then I'm inclined to look the other way and say like, that's who you are, you do you.
2: And maybe you could meditate a little bit.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just bring down one (laughs) notch of Deepak Chopra. So, but then I think that there's a lot of people where it's actually gluten intolerance or Mm -hmm. it's that they are living on sugar and rockstar soda or whatever. And for some people, it's their hormones being out of balance um, so you see a lot of other factors that are creating swinging moods and there I want to get my hands dirty and basically say like, well, let's, let's kind of do some work around these things so that your body is in a state of balance. Mm-hmm. I generally am going to say that that's preferable to someone who's cycling because they're addicted to sugar. Right,
1: right. And so <clears throat> for the people who, where it's like truly hardwiring, I guess, and maybe there's no such thing. I don't know, but I'm just if you're do if you suspect that it's a thyroid and you test the thyroid, sometimes I mean, is there a situation where it, you know you think there's some, maybe there was like some kind of trauma, like you said that turned it on? Like, is there anything that would show up on a brain scan? Like, do you ever just look at imaging of the of an actual brain and imaging. does
0: bipolar show up there? No, yeah, it's imaging. No mental illness really lends itself to brain imaging, which is interesting. I worked in a PET scan lab at Columbia in in med school. I did a research fellowship year. And this was as good as it gets in terms of brain imaging. Yeah. And we were really stretching to point to what's objectively appreciable about um, different mental illnesses on PET imagery. So it's... Yeah, it, it it's hard to objectively point, but when you say like hardwired, bipolar, humans are never so simple, right? So I right. think that there is trauma will play a role. And then I think that, you know, unless someone has like been in the thick of it with me for several months, I'm inclined to say there's almost always some environmental component contributing to the symptomatology. Right.
2: When you say environmental, what do you mean?
0: So different for everybody. So sometimes it's the thyroid. Sometimes it's systemic inflammation. Mm -hmm. And basically everyone their inflamed brain manifests a little bit differently. For some people, an inflamed brain looks like OCD or looks like depression or anxiety. And for some people, it looks like bipolar. Bipolar illness does, it is associated with overall higher levels of systemic inflammation. And even, I think, shorter lifespan. I find in my practice, it travels genetically with things like celiac disease, thyroid, autoimmune illness, as well as alcohol abuse. So you'll see like families where, you know, there's like, The bipolar cousin, the schizophrenic uncle, um, everybody's an alcoholic right. and um, so and everyone has undiagnosed celiac. And so, um, and, and your aunt has thyroid. It's sort of like, that's a family type that I see over and over in my practice. Other people are in totally different families where everyone has cancer and nobody has any of those issues. Right. So, um, so it travels together in that way. So I usually want to look at all of those different things, diet, gut health, systemic inflammation, and then in women, hormones can play a massive role.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what about, can we talk a little bit about sort of typical medications mm-hmm. for bipolar yeah. and the long-term health consequences of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, in certain ways I'm not even the best psychiatrist to speak to it because I basically don't prescribe them anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. My question right. is
2: like how are you addressing this because we what we know of you, you kind of look at medication as a last resort, but I mean, it's always point like it is it seems like it's so common that that's just the leap that people make. So, what is your what's your approach, and how do the meds play into it? Yeah,
0: well, so the meds. I mean, in my earlier days in practice, I was putting, I was basically putting people on Lamictal. That was like my comfort zone. But I had some patients I inherited who were on lithium. It's sort of more effective. It's our only psychiatric med that actually decreases suicidal behavior. Although now you could make a case for ketamine being a, a sort of a psychiatric medication that also decreases suicidality. Not necessarily for bipolar, just overall. Some people are on Depakote. Sometimes people are on things like Seroquel or Abilify. But... Overall, at this point, I'll never really start anybody on a mood stabilizer. I'll sometimes continue people on their mood stabilizer, but if someone's really just looking for straight-up psychopharmacology, it's a little bit like, thank you, next, because I'm Mm -hmm. here to do something a little bit different, which Mm -hmm. is help people who either want to manage this holistically and never go on medication in the first place, or people that want to do the hard work of getting off of it. So my approach with bipolar, I take a lot of pages out of the seizure disorder playbook, and I think those two illnesses, bipolar and seizure, they're sort of second cousins. There's a lot of similarities between the two. A lot of our mood stabilizers are also anti-epileptics, mm-hmm. like Depakote, for example. And then you'll see almost, I think of like a, the episodes of these two things as having a similarity. Like a manic episode is in certain ways, this change in brainwave patterns. It's like, it's like the brain is almost in this like mental seizure and you go into it, you come out of it. It's sort of discreet, mm-hmm. sort of like a seizure. And so with seizure disorder, there's a little bit more of a precedent for thinking about how do we use diet and lifestyle to manage this. So we know that blood sugar matters for seizures and lowering. So there's this concept called the seizure threshold. And basically things can lower the seizure threshold, which means it makes it more likely you'll have a seizure. So I think of it as almost like there's a bipolar threshold. Mm -hmm. And so I want my bipolar patients to keep rock steady blood sugar. I've even had one bipolar patient who was on a bunch of medications. He started seeing me. We got him off of a, a lot of his meds. He stopped drinking. And the thing that really made the biggest difference for him was actually a spoonful of coconut oil and or MCT oil about every three hours throughout the day when he's awake.
2: Just for blood sugar
0: stabilization? Just for blood sugar stabilization. And then there's a healthy fat component in terms of how that stabilizes your neurons. And so he basically is now off meds, higher functioning than he's ever been in his life. That is
2: amazing. And he was a true blue People think coconut oil is bullshit. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anybody really thinks that. It's more just that the big food industry thought it was threatening. Sure. And so they paid a couple of Harvard no, right, scientists no. to say, yeah, it's you got saturated that. fat. Yeah, it's right. bad. You should go back to having canola oil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's yeah. fascinating. So blood sugar is big. Magnesium is big. That's a mineral we're basically all deficient in because our soil is depleted. So our food is so we are. Yeah. And you know, someone who has preeclampsia, they're going to get you an IV of magnesium um, oh, to is prevent that a seizure. Happens? Yeah. So my bipolar patients, I'd like to have their magnesium levels up in a nice, comfortable range.
2: What type of magnesium? I
0: usually put people on magnesium glycinate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that's what I take well no right I know, we, we
2: all know or not we all know but we a lot of us now know that that's great for sleep but that's why I'm wondering because we know that there are different forms I take glycinate too yeah and I'm like A plus we, to both of you I'm yeah. like the evangelist for magnesium glycinate yeah so feel like
0: it's Total game changer. Magnesium blast is for sleep great. specifically,
2: though, so that I didn't know that it was necessarily here to
0: sleep. Bipolar, anxiety, migraines, headaches, menstrual cramps, muscle tension, cardiovascular health, digestion, yes. chronic constipation, and longevity. Yeah, so it's worth taking.
1: Yeah. You should do voiceovers. You just said you that really, really clearly <laughs> and quickly. Ask your doctor, I know.
0: <laughs> I can um, do the rap from like TLC Waterfalls. Oh, I love should it. We do
1: that. Yeah? Oh my god, we're totally doing uh,
0: that. I saw a <laughs> rainbow yesterday.
2: <laughs> okay, so that. Okay. So basically you're saying blood sugar stabilization. And then what other methods?
0: Yeah. Healthy fats are a big part of how I approach bipolar holistically. So I want people to take ample healthy fats, things like ghee from grass-fed cows, coconut oil, MCT oil. I basically, sometimes I'll have them supplement with something called phosphatidylcholine. I basically just want to really protect the myelin and the their neuronal cell membranes. There's this other approach, which is called interpersonal and social rhythms therapy for bipolar, which is one conventional approach to, bi- to bipolar actually agree with. And it's basically recognizing that circadian rhythm is mission critical in bipolar mm-hmm. And yeah, <laughs> so
1: <laughs> Zoe made a face that said, she's yeah, girl, sure did. Yeah. said, yeah, I know. And I'm about to tell
0: somebody <laughs> she's like, <laughs> I recorded this time. podcast entirely. So I could be like, I told you, <laughs> so. Told you so. <laughs> so. So, so cadence rhythm is really important and um, it's no fun. And like, none of us like this, but by no. in particular, where you want to be able to like, go to Cartagena tonight on a flight out of JFK spontaneously. But what you actually have to do is be like a 75-year-old wholesome Midwesterner who's like, well, it's 9.30, I should turn in. Not as sexy. It's just not, but you know- So you want to eat on a regular schedule. You want to recreate on a regular schedule. You want to exercise on a regular schedule. And you want to go to bed regular schedule and at an early time. So you're basically like going to bed about three hours after sunset and waking up with the sun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or like a kitten. We don't need to say like a 75-year-old. Or like
0: a kitten. Like a kitten. Oh, that's Um, cute. Oh, you're (laughs) talking to a kitten. Um. So it's a tough sell, especially for anybody who is like really still attached to their life as a out-of-balance bipolar because then what you're actually doing is basically having like booze for dinner and staying up until 2 a.m. and it's sort of like there's we romanticize that people get um they're attached to that yeah. there's like enjoyment in those like night owl late mm-hmm. night shenanigans in those moments it's sort of like what everyone these days is like this epic you know yeah. and it's like that's that's when the magic happens but you kind of have to say goodbye to that phase of life in order to stay in balance which right. is tough yeah mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: nobody wants to do it.
0: I like the way Ayurveda actually thinks about the hours of the day and how that affects our energy and our sleep. So they think about like certain hours in the evening as being kind of having a kapha quality or like a, you know, mm-hmm. that heavier, more sedentary, restful quality. And so you want to go to sleep at the kapha time, which is early. And if you miss that window, then I think it transitions into a vata time, which is like you don't really want to be asleep then. Like you don't want to be trying to fall asleep then. Right. Um, and then you want to wake up with that vata energy. So you can be spiritual and you can meditate and yeah. the very, is thinner and you have energy but if you keep sleeping then you're back to a kapha phase where it's like oof you know I just want to lie in bed all day like yeah. like
1: a kitten like a kitten. <laughs> like a kitten like a big fat cat <laughs> we just did an episode on Ayurveda actually we yeah. just, so now I actually know what now you're talking know about. about kapha and the vata time of day can we talk about psychedelics of course well okay let's talk about that <laughs> bill.
2: let's turn the corner. Oh, did I turn too <laughs> fat it's good yeah it was my manic it was my manic impulse but we should be very clear
0: this is not a treatment for bipolar <laughs> <laughs> no. This, well, uh, that was my question though. Yeah, is,
2: is can it be a treatment for so just to back up a little bit we talked a little bit before we started recording but also just in general I mean I think you read and hear and you know Michael Pollan is everywhere and there are, there are studies coming out all the time that psychedelics are just proving so effective for certain types of disorders and you know whether it's PTSD or trauma or so backing up or, or starting from there. I mean, what is your, where does that fit with bipolar or does it not?
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's my favorite topic right now and it does not fit in the discussion of holistic approaches to bipolar. Okay. So basically this is where I, I love that we're having a public conversation about psychedelics these days, but I do think we need to like sober ourselves a little bit and say, here's who it can be potentially beneficial for and who here's who it's not totally safe for. So I think people with bipolar illness, schizophrenia, other psychotic issues, or really a first or maybe even a secondary relative with these issues, um, probably shouldn't be coming to these substances and these medicines um, thinking that this holds the key. I think it can be pretty destabilizing for them. Just for
1: for example, we were talking about the substances being
0: so psychedelics psilocybin. in general. So there's the classic psychedelics, things like LSD, psil- uh, psilocybin, mm-hmm. which is the active ingredient, magic mushrooms, um, ayahuasca, you know, there's 5-MeO-DMT, there's a few other things. And then there's these things like MDMA that's in even ketamine, which are not classic psychedelics, but are sort of being lumped into this category as new breakthrough treatments that give people a certain experience, like a mm-hmm. mystical experience sometimes, or a heart-opening empathic experience that can create big shifts and really change their mental health trajectory and so they are right now treatments like there's there's research there's really good quality really incredible research on using for example psilocybin for end of life anxiety they're also doing really good research on MTMA for PTSD and psilocybin is also being investigated for OCD depression anxiety Um, all these medications also do something so they all promote something called BDNF or brain drive neurotrophic factor which increases neurogenesis and neuroplasticity which translation of that is basically your brain can grow and adapt and change. It's not actually stuck if you kill your brain cells. It's not like they can't regrow, they can. Um, and it's really a window of opportunity to change entrenched behavioral patterns. So that's really interesting when it comes to things like OCD and addiction. Um, so these are really good medicines for any kind of stuck or rigid brain pattern. Mm. Bipolar is interestingly sort of on the other end of the spectrum. So any of these brain patterns where it's like there's already too much chaos in the system, um, you don't necessarily want to introduce a psychedelic, which is going to introduce more chaos. Mm, Um, But for something like a really ruminative depression, it can be fantastic for that situation. All right. Good to know. So what if you're depressive bipolar? Ooh, touche. So the bipolar part trumps it. Oh Really? Yeah. Okay. Because what you don't want to do with bipolar is actually like destabilize the system, even if they're in a depressive episode. Right.
2: And is the depressive, I know you sort of broke this down at the beginning, but I want to go back to it. The depressive episode in a bipolar person, is it, does it look the same as somebody with just kind of classic clinical depression?
0: Yes and no. Um, It can look identical, but sometimes what tips me off that it's more of a bipolar depression is you'll hear things like, oh yeah, my grandmother was bipolar. She would close herself or lock herself in her room for weeks at a time and never come out. So that's pretty extreme, but I hear sort of lore of that for people that have had family members who are bipolar. So it's like they they can be an even more sort of like isolative, Kind of like really low level of activity depression state. Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes I think maybe it's, you know, a way to tell the difference is just what you respond to in terms of medication, right? So if you're bipolar and you're not responding to whatever antidepressants,
0: then. Well, yeah, bipolar depression is sort of notoriously tricky to treat. A lot of the mood stabilizers don't do a great job lifting the depression, they more just stabilize. Some people do like a mood stabilizer and an antidepressant. For me, I'm always still just interested in like, I want to lift right. someone up to the zero baseline and then keep them there. Right. And so I don't want to precipitate a manic episode and I don't want to keep them low. I just want sort of using diet and lifestyle to lift. Mm-hmm. Um, things like yoga, exercise, meditation, and really good sleep habits can do that. And then just getting rid of all of the triggers that can make bipolar cycling more likely. One thing we didn't talk about before is gluten as a trigger for bipolar episodes, oh, right, which is a really right. common one.
2: As a trigger. As so a not trigger. even as like a exact suggested consistent. treatment, like reducing it, but it actually can trigger.
0: Totally. It can trigger. So I've had a lot of patients bipolar patients over the years for whom like we'll get them stabilized and then they'll suddenly be in a manic episode and it's like why or a depressive episode and then more Mm -hmm. times than i could possibly count when we really look under exactly we look under the the hood and it's like okay so i did have pancakes this weekend so gluten is a trigger both for bipolar depression and (laughs) bipolar mania my theory is that it has to do with the interplay between thyroid and bipolar Mm -hmm. so basically the gluten creates a little bit of a molecular mimicry antibodies against gluten it it picks up on thyroid tissue is looking similar to the gluten and so those antibodies are attacking thyroid tissue and then and that ensues that whole process we talked about before where there's a stimulated thyroid looking like relative hyperthyroidism or a damaged thyroid looking like relative hypothyroidism so this is my own just personal theory mm-hmm. but for some reason gluten seems to be a trigger
1: well there i mean you're seeing it yeah right? so you're yeah. seeing it in your practice i think that's pretty,
0: pretty significant. It's Mm. anecdotal. I haven't put it through randomized double-blind clinical trials, (laughs) but it is um, something I'm I'm seeing.
1: Sorry to tell you you have to sleep like a kitten and move away from the pancakes.
0: Well, (laughs)
2: kittens don't eat grain either. So,
1: you know, this analogy is really holding up.
0: (laughs) Which is tough. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that um, what I ask of my bipolar is to manage their symptoms holistically. It's tough. Like I really Uh, have a lot of sympathy for the sacrifices I'm asking. You know, it's...
2: Right. Some people would probably say it's easier to take a pill.
0: It is easier to take a pill. It's, it's easier. Yeah. It might not be the most alive that you could feel, right. but it is. Um, it's definitely easier than living um, with so much discipline around diet and lifestyle. But right. For some people, it's really worthwhile. And I love when it's right, it's a really meaningful work that we do together. I've had a handful of bipolar patients over the years where it's taken a long time. We've t- we tapered off their meds really slowly. Mm-hmm. We've built up the diet and lifestyle where it's very solid and then they're completely med free and stable and you know I'll hear comments like um, I feel like myself or this is the first time I feel alive or I've had a patient recently say like hi, nice to meet you right <laughs> and yeah. after we've been working together for years and so oh, it's so nice it is it's it's a pretty worthy goal but it's not an easy path
2: yeah well so that goes back to the question from Zoe earlier like what are what are the risks and the ramifications of these meds?
0: Yeah. So the meds for bipolar, they have all kinds of side effects. They each have their own profile of side effects. For some like Depakote, it's increasing the risk of polycystic ovary syndrome, for example. Um, It sort of has an impact on your liver health and your metabolism. Um, Lithium can damage your thyroid and your kidneys. A lot of them, what I'll hear patients complain about is that they feel blunted. They Mm -hmm. feel their creativity blunted, which is debatable, but I hear that enough times. Um, Or people just feel like (laughs) unnarrowing. You're like, you're not actually that create, yeah <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> okay well, i guess in a way i'm like tipping my hat to the fact that my field would say ah oh, that's you know right. hogwash but yeah i tend to believe patients and when you know they, they didn't read this somewhere they right. just come in and say like it's weird but i think my creativity is blunted my bias is always just to believe people's personal sure. experience
1: yeah. so lithium is interesting because it's a obvious it's a very common and you stay on it it's it's the longest i don't know what I'm talking about but basically you have to stay on it for a really long time. Yeah,
0: well, all of these medications there's not really an off-ramping process. There's, there isn't. It's is a
1: lifelong drug yeah. and there's uh, you know it's not good for you, right? You just said one of the things is thyroid potentially could damage your thyroid. So if that's so connected to like bipolar, then how do you navigate that when you're trying to get someone off of lithium specifically?
0: Well, yeah, conventionally, nobody appreciates this connection between thyroid and bipolar. So we're like, give this treatment that actually will damage someone's thyroid yeah. further, but it also does like stabilize in other ways. I think yeah. with lithium, it's interesting. I like to put some of my patients on lithium orotate supplement, which is kind of the equivalent of microdosing with lithium. Mm. It's like rather than 300 milligrams multiple times a day, it's uh, five milligrams at night. And so that's because lithium itself is not such a terrible mineral. It's actually when you look at parts of the world where there's a higher lithium content. Content in the drinking water, there are lower rates of bipolar. So yeah. there probably is something to the fact that this can stabilize the brain. I just think the doses that we require to hit someone with a MAC truck so that they're only being stabilized by medication and not by diet and lifestyle, those doses I think are too much for the body. But using microdosing with it as a way of just augmenting the overall diet and lifestyle strategies is a nice option. What
2: is the incidence of
1: Bipolar in the U.S.
0: It's a great question. I don't have that stat memorized. We'll look it up. Yeah, we'll get our fact checker right.
1: But on it is yeah. very interesting to draw the the connection between your environment. I mean, having nothing to do with bipolar or lithium, there is another case of this sort of happening in one of the blue zones in my dad's island uh, in Greece. Um, Ikaria. Ikaria. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Look
0: at you. you. Um, I was yeah. saying Ikaria for the longest time. I
1: know. Yeah, you and this uh, splendid soup. What's but up, but it's, it's, Nicole? It's, it's, hey. <laughs> right. um, anyway, so yeah, there is a. I guess apparently there's supposed to be some kind of like low level of radiation that they detected. Interesting. Um, and I think maybe also in San Diego, I could be making this up, but I'm pretty sure that they a were lot of happy They were they were drawing a connection between sort of like lower rates of like cancer and everything else, such like just in the like the
0: hormesis effect,
1: keep, keeping it at
0: bay, or. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of like hormesis, this idea of a little bit of a stressor or a toxicant mm-hmm. um, actually helps your body strengthen against it. Um, it's sort of like you're being almost it's like, like a vaccinated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's so wow. issue, but yeah. So interesting. But yeah.
1: So another type of drug that I think is common in bipolar sort of cocktails is clonopin' mm. which is a pretty gnarly one. How on earth do you get people off Klonopin?
0: Mm-mm. I have to actually look at the time. We got to go. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. yeah. um, no, Klonopin, uh, this has been my life's work is to recognize the tidal wave I'm up against with this. This is being given out way too cavalierly. I used to work in a primary care setting where it was like, you know providers had maybe 15 20 minutes of the patient patient is anxious depressed not sleeping going through a stressor in their life they had crying in the office it's like let me just give you Xanax yeah. and so um, it's sort of like the quick fix solution that does make people better initially you know they're happy campers they're happy patients happy customers and then what you've done is for many people you've hooked them on a lifetime Super problematic substance that increases risk of dementia, shortens your lifespan. And well, that's an association. The dementia is causal and not to mention like it it kind of can ruin your life, both if you stay on it or if you attempt to get off of it. And yeah. this is like, I would say, a, a sizable Portion of my practice is people in a many month, sometimes many year process of getting off of benzodiazepines. So not to be started or approached lightly. Yes, people give bipolar patients benzos. Basically, you see some in a manic episode and you're like, holy shit, we need to stop the bleeding. And you can stop the bleeding with benzos, but you've really just created a new problem. And so okay. it's 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 bad. And not everyone, like I don't mean to be so doom and gloom. There are people listening that are like, fuck, but if yeah, it's working well, for you, the withdrawal is terrible. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. And, and I mean, have this a, is
2: literally like a whole other episode.
0: It's a whole <laughs> episode. I mean, it's multiple episodes. Yeah, it should be a documentary. It's the, the withdrawal. One like pet feeling I just have about withdrawal in general is that we don't appreciate- when we're in withdrawal, like we forget to attribute things to the withdrawal. We forget to point to that. So benzo withdrawal, um, it looks an awful lot like what you tried to treat in the first place Mm -hmm. with the benzo, but usually exacerbated. So long-term use of benzos, the subacute withdrawal, the acute withdrawal, it can look like anxiety and panic and insomnia and agitation. And long-term, I think these substances make people depressed and they can. Um, And they also, I think really play a counter therapeutic role in bipolar. I think they create one more swing on a day-to-day basis because you're swinging between intoxication and withdrawal, which is not what you want to do in bipolar. You want to stabilize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, I'm, okay. I'm no fun. I'm sorry. No, I know. Yeah. But I, I mean,
1: I think it's, it's it, it is part of the conversation, right? I think it really is sort of woven into this Bipolar sure. fiber. I think it seems, as far as I know, well, to be and very something continent. that yeah. seems. I mean, you know,
2: it's kind of like a cultural, you know, just a meme about like mommy's little helper, yeah, or like a little exactly. Santa. I mean, why is it
1: mommy? It's
2: because it's like it's a Kidding. sticker. <laughs> um, you know, like I've I've clonopin for when I fly because I get and I don't take it all the time, but I like knowing I have it and I take it like once every six months. Yeah. But it's not something to be taken lightly, and it's not. I mean. It's all a little scary. The
0: one use for it that I don't have too much of a problem with is the idea of like that it lives in your pillbox in your bag when you fly. Not that I want you to take it, but the knowing that you have it, that security blanket, I think that sometimes I'll prescribe it and sort of say like, here, don't take this. Yeah. Sometimes
1: just flying just next to Erica, (laughs) knowing that I have it, (laughs) being seated (laughs) next to you on the plane makes me calm down. (laughs) Because I'm actually fine when the plane's moving. It's when it stops. And everyone starts to like get up and go for the door. I have total claustrophobia. That's the complete opposite. That's when I freak out. When it's not moving, the doors are closed, the air is not like I can't just be
0: still. Honestly, I'm fascinated by flight anxiety. There's something to this. So many people have this reaction. And I think that I I think about the fact that, well, I used to think like, oh, sure, it's humans that have a, a visceral appreciation for the fact that this is whack, that we get into a steel. Machine and fly through the air. But I think then I've thought about Ayurvedic implications. It's the most Vata exacerbating thing you could possibly do because uh, it's literally, it's in the yeah, air, it's I changing time it so zone, honestly. it gets you out of your routine uh, for the day, it's drying. Um, but even beyond that, I think that it's the, really, it's actually the toxic air quality in planes that makes us all lose our minds. So it's everything. It's everything. That's yeah. I mean, yeah. And then travel in the United States is just so undignified.
2: Well, I'm glad to know <laughs> really that my is. dosha is responsible for. My my
0: so, anxiety and that it's, it's not, not me, my brain. it's
2: my dosha. <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt. My dosha says I shouldn't fly today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Okay.
0: So I think we've covered quite a bit here. Should we, should we return to psychedelics briefly? Oh yes. Because I just of, remember. thank you. Yeah. I did have a question
1: around that. So I, I feel like we're in this moment right now where, you know, the legalization of marijuana and CBD and everything else kind of paving the way and there being more of a cultural shift there and this sort of general understanding now that medicine, you know, might come from plants and like might actually serve us in some other way. Like now that that seems to have like a bit of momentum, like how far do you think we are from psilocybin and all sort of this actually taking shape and and being, you know, prescribed and...
0: Yeah, we're not too far right now. So, and so you're basically saying marijuana is a gateway drug? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's okay,
2: a, it's the first to be legalized. That's I think how it's, it's the first to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like, yeah, medicinal marijuana, right? Medical marijuana, people who are actually treating their pain, right? I um, I hope it's a gateway drug. I want it to be a gateway drug. I agree.
0: Uh, Here's an interesting PSA is that I recently learned that we should stop using the term marijuana because that was basically developed to create more moral panic around cannabis because it makes it sound sort of like... You know, it's from Mexico and it's, it's dangerous. And it's it's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. so So huh. call it by the plant's name, cannabis. cannabis. And yeah, and it sort of changes the PR around it. Interesting. Yeah, it really does. But yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I agree with you. I think that we are, we're just such an interesting culture, right? Where like you have people that are pushing the boundaries and you have the reactionary conservative folks and we sort of need this yin and yang as a culture but we've had a predominance of that reactionary conservative approach and it's held us back and so it's kind of sad to think about that we've had like about a 30-year moratorium on this kind of research and to think of how many people have been left suffering Mm -hmm. and not given the help that they could have gotten if we had been moving forward with this research but I'm not really like resisting that reality I think it's kind of all part of the process Mm -hmm. but so basically now we, these are very much coming down the pipeline as potential treatments for mental health conditions. Everyone is taking super careful steps with this, but a lot of them are in phase three clinical trials. And even MDMA is now, I think, going to be considered an FDA breakthrough treatment. And so there are already clinics being established where it's going to be available for people with PTSD.
1: Well, this was very interesting. We could go on. on. I know. I want to. But Will you thank come you. back and see us again. Part three, <sighs> and we'll have some we'll
2: mushroom tea and we'll just <laughs> really get into
1: it. Yeah, that would be fun. And we could just like FaceTime. My mom? Yeah. yeah, he yeah. yeah. will totally join. I'll totally do. And,
0: um, and if we can't get him, we'll get Oprah. Perfect. Okay. Done. I'm Sloppy actually supposed seconds. to go see her
1: now.
2: That's why I'm a little antsy.
0: <laughs> but thank you
2: so much. <laughs> thank you it's guys. So nice to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks thank you for Hang out more. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at
1: us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.